1: This week, uh, we have the wonderful privilege of uh, bringing back onto our podcast uh, one of our most popular guests, uh, my colleague and friend, uh, Michelle Deitch. Uh, Michelle, as many of you will remember from an earlier episode, she is one of the leading experts in the country and certainly in Texas as well on prison reform and many elements related to incarceration uh, in the criminal justice system. She's an attorney with uh, more than 30 years of experience working in this area. Uh, She's an award-winning teacher. I know that as a colleague of hers, uh, many times I have students uh, who were in her class and they just uh, rave about her teaching. Uh, Michelle is a a faculty member at the LBJ School and the School of Law at the University of Texas at Austin. She's an award-winning teacher, a Soros Senior Justice Fellow. Um, and her specialties include independent oversight of correctional institutions, prison conditions, the management of youth in custody and juveniles in the adult criminal justice system. She co-chairs the American Bar Association subcommittee on correctional oversight and has been involved in drafting many of the important professional standards and policies and studies regarding these issues. Uh, Michelle, thank you for joining us today. Well,
0: thank you so much for having me back, Jeremy. It's a pleasure.
1: Well, it's it's uh, really great to have you on today. We're going to discuss uh, prison reform, criminal justice issues related to incarceration, with particular attention to the influence that uh, COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement are having on the ways that Michelle and others who work on these issues think about them and pursue reform today in what really is a new world from uh, 2019. Before we get to that discussion, of course, we have Zachary's scene-setting poem. Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? The Difference Between the One and the Other. Well, let's hear it.
2: I look out when it rains through windows with horizontal bars sitting staring through Venetian blinds at a world stopped by sickness. Somehow, a man not so much older than darker and poorer looks out through windows with vertical bars at rain that falls in a world of sickness. I look back, pick up a cup of tea, sit in a rocking chair and smile at the ceiling fan, face mask on a stroll around the block, and take out from the restaurant. Somewhere, a man not so much older than forgotten and forgetting turns back to a room of wheezing faces and beds two feet apart and sits on a shared toilet thinking of his bare face. I look up at night in a bed like an island in the dark with windows and air vents and people who seem like miles away. And maybe I'm afraid of the dark, but I'm not sleeping restlessly because of disease. Sometime I have gone without gourmet coffee, sometime I have gone without my favorite bookstore. Sometime I have been forced to face time instead of handshakes. Sometime the man has gone without his family. Sometime the man has gone without hope. Sometime the man has gone without being counted, but he is still forced into the field so he can think of his friends dying unseen and solitary so he can be punished for not wanting to die. And still you ask, what is the difference between the one and the other?
1: What is your poem about, Zachary?
2: My poem is really about uh, the immense difference and in inequality between those of us experiencing a pandemic at home and, and lucky enough to, uh, to uh, be able to survive a pandemic like this in comfort and those who are in prisons and incarcerated, who in many cases are forced to ignore health regulations and continue to work or continue to, uh, to, to stay in crowded cells.
1: Uh, Michelle, is is that accurate? Is our prison system uh, poorly adjusted to the conditions we're in?
0: Well, first, let me just say that I'm blown away once again by your poem, Zachary. It just—you've got such a grasp of the issues that are front and center here, and I love the the parallels, but also the um, the othering that's in, inherent in that in that poem. I mean, you're seeing the commonalities between us and people who are incarcerated, but you're also seeing the inequities there and um, the ways in which our, our situations are so, so different. So thank you for that. And In answer to your question, Jeremy, yes. I mean, I think that Zachary put his finger on, on so much of, you know, people inside are suffering under these conditions right now. I mean, being incarcerated has always been an, an extraordinary challenge, but under these conditions, it's unimaginable how much pain and anxiety and uh, and stress they must be feeling.
1: And, and we read about uh, figures like um, Michael Cohen and Roger Stone and others who have been released. Uh, does that happen for ordinary prisoners? Do they get released for health reasons or how, do, how does that work?
0: Well, first of all, that's the federal system that we're talking about. and of course, most people in this country are incarcerated at the state level and at the local level. Um, So yes, there are plenty of examples of people who are being released, but it is not nearly as widespread as it should be. And the examples of these high profile folks who are getting out um, is really warping the public's perception of both what needs to happen and uh, it gives the impression that a lot more people are getting out than they are. Um, there's a lot of inequities. The people with the resources to hire lawyers, to take advantage of some of these policies that are quite appropriately in place, um, they're getting results.
1: And are we still uh, locking uh, people up, particularly those from minority backgrounds, at, at very high rates, or has that changed?
0: Um our prison system is a reflection of the vast disparities in who in this country gets caught up in the criminal justice system, who gets arrested, who gets charged with certain types of offenses, who who gets attorneys, who gets uh, who gets convicted, and what kind of sentence they get. So, as a result of a, a, a cascading series of disparities throughout the criminal justice system those we see similar kinds of disparities playing out in terms of the population of our prisons and jails.'ve
2: um, we've, we've seen recently uh, to a lot of politicians and, and leaders across the country, particularly in in smaller states with large incarcerated populations, trying to count uh, incarcerated populations as separate from the, from the uh, non-incarcerated populations when it comes to COVID-19 data. How can we address the gap between um, prison populations and non-incarcerated populations when it comes to the virus? That's
0: a, that's a great question. Um, you're absolutely right. There have been a number of instances where, for example, in some county that's supposed to be reporting the number of people who have COVID, who've tested positive for COVID, they exclude people who are in a prison located in that community, which mm. is a crazy thing to do for a million different reasons but it's really a reflection of the fact that we treat people who are incarcerated as though they're not part of our communities. And in fact, they are. And I think that the whole COVID crisis has really driven that point home. You can't draw an iron curtain between what happens inside these facilities to the people inside and what happens in the communities. Those are very porous curtains. Um, People go in and out of jails. There's a very high rate of churn um, as they come in and they're released hours later, days later. In our prisons, you've got um, not only people who are being released because they finished their sentences um, or people who are coming in to begin a sentence, but you also have staff who are going in and out of these facilities on a daily basis. So if staff are being exposed to the virus inside, they're bringing it back to their free world communities and to their families. And if someone inside gets sick and the uh, facility is not capable of taking care of them, they're going to go to a free world hospital and take up a bed in that community. So the idea of not counting people uh, with covid inside and treating them as something apart from our communities is this really false dichotomy that needs to be changed
1: It's such a good point michelle um, and and I wonder, following up on that, uh, have we seen evidence that the Black Lives Matter movement and much of the activism that has certainly increased in the last few months because of the pandemic and following the assassination of George Floyd? Have we seen that bubbling up within the prison system?
0: Absolutely. I mean, the confluence of COVID and Black Lives Matter is like a perfect storm for the um, prison in, prisons and jails in this country. It None of the issues are new, but it's made them front and center. Um, you have to confront them. So as, in terms of Black Lives Matter, we've got to look at the fact that so many people in car, first of all, that there are so many people incarcerated in our prisons and jails. Yes. Which means that um, there's no possibility of social distancing inside. And then we need to look at who's being incarcerated. Um, and most people who are inside are people who are particularly medically vulnerable, they're at high risk. Um, you've got uh, You've got to look at the immense disparities in who's there racial disparities, economic disparities, um, health disparities. All of those challenges make them far more vulnerable to the ravages of this disease. Um, and so, yes, Black Lives Matter issues are bubbling up on the part of advocates, on the part of people who um, are incarcerated on the part of their families. And it's really a message that we need to ask questions about why people are incarcerated, do they need to be there, and what can we be doing to um, handle our criminal justice system in a different way
1: and and i i get a sense from your answer michelle uh, and from so much of the w- important work you've done that you don't think the solution is minor reforms but something much bigger uh, can can you share with us what some of your thoughts and the thoughts of others in this field who have this expertise what 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 are the thoughts you 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 have on bigger changes to the prison system
0: well we have to start by trying to decarcerate these Facilities as much as possible. And that's true both for COVID and uh, from a Black Lives Matter perspective, and also because it's good criminal justice policy. Um, There are far too many people locked up, and it is not keeping us safer. In fact, it's making us less safe as a society and much poorer because it's very expensive to keep people locked up. So we need some pretty radical changes in terms of who we decide needs to be kept separate from our communities. Um, We also need to stop being so punitive in our approach. Um, I think that the COVID crisis has driven home exactly how punitive we are as a society. In other countries, there have been mass releases of people from prisons and jails because they are so vulnerable and at such high risk. And from just a simple humanitarian perspective, it's understood that that's what needs to happen. Here, we are dead set on keeping people locked up to serve every minute of their sentence, and sometimes beyond that, um, because of that punitive impulse. So I think we need to start switching from uh, uh, wanting to punish people to wanting to find ways to meet their needs. What What needs did they have that led them to involvement in the criminal justice system? And can we address that in ways that don't involve the criminal justice system? Um, What if we invested in communities? What if we invested in education and health and jobs so that criminal justice doesn't become the default way of dealing with our country's social problems?
1: It it sounds, Michelle, like this is connected to... Uh, the movement also to reallocate funding uh, from police departments to other parts of local communities and state communities. Is this connected to that?
0: It's absolutely connected to that. Um, These issues are absolutely related to the police reform movement. Policing issues have got the public thinking about, are there other ways we could deal with social problems? Can we take the money that we are spending on policing and reinvest it in our communities in different ways? Can we, um, can we find ways to uh, involve social workers or the health system or the mental health system in, instead of the criminal justice system? It's a very short step from there to how are we using our prisons and our jails? Who are we locking up? Why are we locking them up? What can we invest in? There was a study uh, some years ago, and it's been replicated in many places, uh, showing that we have in this country what we call million-dollar blocks, where you could literally identify a single block in New York City from which so many people go to prison that we could say we're spending a million dollars a year to lock up people from that block. Well, suppose we took that million dollars that we're spending to do nothing other than to cage them. And we reinvested it in that community. Because if we do that, we are actually promoting public safety by preventing those harms from occurring and preventing the need to lock people up. So reinvesting in our communities, it's a form of what we call justice reinvestment. We need to look at those kinds of strategies.
2: I mean it, it seems to to make a lot of, of sense. It's it's almost as in healthcare, right? Instead of instead of developing the greatest hospitals to deal with problems when people get really sick, let's let's focus on preventative care so that people don't get really sick. Um how how um how has this country and the criminal justice experts and policymakers in this country failed for so long to see this as a problem and, and failed for so long to see that criminal justice has to be about more than just punishment.
0: You know, I think that that really goes to our country's culture. I think we are an extraordinarily, um, uh, a country that thrives on the notion of individual responsibility and holding people responsible. we have, we give people a tremendous amount of individual freedom, but we also, uh, want to punish them when they do something wrong. And that's a very different attitude than many other countries have. So I think that that is part of the problem, um, that we have not yet seen that we are bettered as a society from having a more um, communal approach and more holistic approach to these social problems. So that's part of it. I think that many policymakers for so long saw these investments as very expensive, but what they failed to see is that we're spending uh, orders of magnitude more on incarceration, that we reduce the need for incarceration by making those kinds of investments. Uh,
1: Michelle, do do you see... um... Racism is at the core of this. I mean, many many are now arguing, and, and, and many did before, but particularly in the last few months, many have come to argue that the entire criminal justice system, particularly policing and incarceration, that these look more and more like vestiges of slavery and convict labor. Uh, legitimized in ways to look different, but actually really carrying the same route forward. And that's one of the explanations for why particularly young African-American men tend to be in the worst situations in our prison system. And uh, white men who commit uh, fraud and banking banking crimes and even electoral crimes, they don't get the same kind of punishment, even though one could argue those those crimes are more harmful to society. I, is race really central to the explanation, and how how do you see it as part of the larger story?
0: It's absolutely central to the system. Um, you cannot look at our prison system today and not see in it the vestiges of our country's history with slavery. Um, many of the Texas prisons are literally located on the land from plantations, from slave times. Um, you've got people, well, from from those slavery periods up through um, the convict leasing periods when people in custody were literally rented out to... Uh, uh, farmers with lands that needed uh, tilling um, where it was a system of slavery by another name um, to the current day system where people in custody are still working those same lands and even growing cotton. You've got uh, prison facilities that are literally named for slave owners and for the owners of those plantations for people who uh were high up in government or prison officials who were brutal in their treatment of people in custody, Um, there's no way you can look at that system we have today and not say it is connected. We have not, as a country, as a state, as a society, ever grappled with the connections between our history and where our criminal justice system is today. And we've got to do that.
1: And, and I know this is something you 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 do pioneering work on, and it's one of the areas as a historian that I have such high regard for your work. What does it look like when maybe in this moment we can begin to talk about these connections? What does that look like in in the in the changing nature of the policy debate? What what do you see changing?
0: Well, I think it begins with an acknowledgement of history and say saying. Or understanding how it brought us to this place, that we have to understand that that's where our punitive response to criminality stems from. That's where our uh, the brutality that we often see inside custodial environments comes from. That's where we see all the othering that happens inside, the us-them mentality. That's where it comes from. So we need to start by acknowledging all of that, and seeing if we can accomplish a culture change, both in a societal way, so that we uh, treat people who are incarcerated differently, and we treat people who uh, get involved in criminal activities differently. Um, but it begins by seeing the humanity of people who are locked up, and recognizing, much in the same way that uh, that Zachary's poem. Highlighted that they're not that different from us. They're people with hopes and dreams and fears and anxieties and families and kids. Um, they've got. They're not that different from the rest of us. And I think in this moment we are called on to look at people who are incarcerated with that recognition of their humanity and ask what would it take to treat them with dignity and respect and to try to meet their needs because that is going to make us safer as a society and better as human beings.
1: It, 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 it seems from what you've said uh, so eloquently that at the root of this is, is really having a deeper discussion about crime and and what crime is and what it isn't and why we call certain activity criminal and other activity not criminal. It, it seems to me that's at the root of this, of this, but that's a very difficult conversation to have, right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I fully recognize and appreciate that there are some very, very serious crimes that are committed, and uh, no one should be subjected to that. There are many people who have been victimized by others. The question is, can we respond to those crimes in a way that we still respect the dignity and humanity of the people who committed them and meets the needs of people who have been victimized for a sense of justice and what would it take to accomplish those things? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I I was just thinking as you were as as you were uh, describing this so well, of uh, some of these uh, horrible campaign ads we're already seeing uh, from the president of the United States. You know, where where there's an older lady in her house, and there's some I don't know if you've seen this, Michelle, and someone you know coming to the door to try to break in. uh, You know, dark silhouette, uh, and you know she's calling for the police, and you know that sort of the fear that Americans have and the ways in which this is nothing new to this president, the ways in which politicians often play to the fears of citizens, it seems in some way like we have to we have to educate ourselves out of that without in any way denying that there are serious crimes, but recognizing that the fear might be disproportionate and misplaced from what the real set of crimes are.
0: That, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that throughout um, the last several decades, we have politicized the crime issue and the way that we talk about it through political ads, through the media, has totally distorted the public sense of how big a risk there is to our communities. Um, in fact, violent crime is a very, very, very small portion of uh cases that get investigated by the police. The police, in fact, are very rarely investigating crime at all or stopping crime at all. They're mostly involved in other kinds of activities. Um, So these cases that generate the public outrage and fear are a tiny fraction of the crimes that people are going to prison for. We've got a very distorted sense of who's in prison.
1: And one of the other uh, things I've learned uh, through our podcast and through other discussions is that actually one of the worst crimes uh, which would be sexual assault seems to be one of those that's least prosecuted uh, in places like Austin and other cities which, which seems to me almost backwards from the way one would expect this
0: yeah that is that is absolutely true I mean in those cases uh, are hard to uh, to prosecute and to investigate they raise a lot of different challenges but um, it's certainly one that uh, many people are quite rightly concerned about.
2: Yeah, I, I think that what makes this moment too, uh, so powerful is we're finally recognizing that crime and that that crime, but also the, um, the mishandling of law enforcement are, are symptoms of a larger problem. They're not the problem themselves and i think that's what really allows this moment to to have such a broad scope when it comes to reanalyzing our history is that it's not just about one problem or just about police brutality it's about examining what our country's history means and how it affects us today
0: that that's absolutely right and these are structural issues and you know these are not one off bad apple situations we need to be asking when when we see that there's a horrific case of police brutality, or some incident that occurs in uh, in prison that involves brutality, or a suicide in, in a jail, any of these issues, we need to be asking not just why did this incident happen and what went wrong here, but what are the larger issues that might have contributed to these kinds of situations? Is there anything we could do to, what lessons can we learn? Is there anything we can do to prevent them in the future? And those are the larger questions that I don't see us asking sufficiently.
1: So, uh, Michelle, as you know, uh, we'd like to always close our podcast, uh, with, uh, a call to action, with uh, positive pathways that listeners, particularly our younger listeners, can pursue with the knowledge that you've provided them with, with the historical background. Um, so so what are the things, and you do this with students in your classes through class projects, what are the things that young people can do uh, to make a difference if they care about these issues, as I believe many young people do? What can they do to make a difference today?
0: Sure, and I do believe that the young people care about this issue tremendously. My classes really have made that so clear to me. Um, First of all, educate yourself about these issues. Um, This is something there's a lot of great literature that has been published in recent years. Read everything you can about the history of our prison jails um, and about the kinds of reforms that advocates are recommending and that researchers uh, have been able to uh, write about. Um, Contact your legislators, contact your public officials, the governor's office. Tell them that you care about these issues. One of the biggest problems is that our, our governor and legislators don't realize that anyone really worries about people who are inside. And so they feel like, well, we could just keep them locked up. It doesn't matter if they get COVID. It won't affect us. It's that othering that we've talked about. So the more you could say in your letters, what are you doing to prevent COVID inside? Why are you letting people who are not a risk to our society remaining inside where they are at incredibly high risk to get COVID? COVID is now, um, or many of these prisons and jails are among the COVID hotspots in the country. So we need to be releasing people. And it's your letters and your communications, your messaging, that's going to help make that message meaningful, listened to by public officials. Let them know that someone cares.
1: That's right. Just activism. Good trouble, as John Lewis would call it, it's right? Getting into good trouble. Do, do you think voting is also an issue? It, this has become uh, an issue in a state like Florida, where there's been a lot of very effective activism, including a referendum to give uh, former felons back the right to vote that's been denied to them, but yet there are things being done uh, to prevent them from voting. Is, is, is that an issue, too? Should we try to active, activate felons and former felons to become voters again?
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's no better way to help people reintegrate into our communities and realize that they are part of our communities than by giving them that civic responsibility to vote. So um, trying to register people who do have a right to vote, who were formerly incarcerated, um, getting the word out that uh, it is important for them to be involved in the civic uh, in the civic responsibility, critically important.
1: Uh, Zachary, is, is this motivating for many of your, your young friends and peers? I mean, do you see this as an issue that, that matters? I think Michelle and I have seen at the university that there's more interest in these, in this these days. Do you think that's something that's enduring?
2: I definitely think that, there, that, that that there is a huge interest among young people in these issues. I would just encourage my peers to, to look deeply into the history of these issues and see them not just as incidents that need justice for individuals, but larger historical and structural problems that need to be addressed in our society. And I think that's where scholarship from people like you is really important because it helps us to to visualize how this isn't just a one-off problem. This is something that needs to be addressed because it's going to keep happening until it is.
1: Yeah. I, I, I agree, Zachary. I think that Michelle's work illustrates uh, really how this is one of the issues where scholarship and policy really can work hand in hand. The work that you've described, Michelle, highlights this problem and, and it points to actually what seem like some common sense solutions. I mean, that's every time I listen to you, Michelle, I think it's strange we haven't done these things, isn't it?
0: Well, I like to think that it's, it's common sense as well. Unfortunately, there's that's something that's in short supply.
1: <laughs> well, Michelle, thank you for joining us uh, today again and really updating us on these crucially important issues and, and helping us to see that in this difficult moment we're, we're living through right now, there, there is a possibility maybe to focus energy upon this problem and a, and a problem that if we focus energy on, we can make some real progress on. It's, it's, really, uh, it's really wonderful to have you on. Thank you, Michelle.
0: Thank you again, and um, thank you to all your listeners and to Zachary for his wonderful poem and very insightful commentary.
1: Absolutely. Thank you to everyone who joins us each week for This Is Democracy.
2: This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin.
0: The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com.
2: Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.